The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Trad Controversies, Episode 7 on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, James Trepfer, and on this episode, I have the privilege to be joined by His Excellency Bishop Dolan and Father Chicada from St. Gertrude the Great Church in Westchester, Ohio. Your Excellency Father, thank you for joining me this evening. Your Excellency, would you like to lead us in a prayer? This is the Church's prayer for um, the Feast of St. Pius V, since we will be speaking on the topic of the Society of St. Pius V. O God, who didst vouchsafe to choose blessed Pius V for the crushing of the enemies of thy Church and the restoration of divine worship, make us to be defended by his watchful care, and so to adhere to thy service, that all the controversies of our enemies being overcome, we may rejoice in everlasting peace through Christ our Lord. Amen. Pope St. Pius V, pray for us. And on this episode, we're going to be discussing, I wouldn't say a very recent controversy, but I would say a very pertinent controversy here still in our day, and that is the Society of Pius V and their position on the tuck line and many other state of a contest clergy that are just even loosely associated with the tuck line. So, Father, uh, Your Excellency, uh, maybe we'll start with you. Why do you think this controversy is still important uh, to talk about today? Well, as you mentioned, uh, James, this is a well-known traditionalist controversy, which has gone on. Uh, The fire has never been extinguished for about three decades. And, of course, it it hits the, the faithful because the, the Society of St. Pius V publicly refuses to give the sacraments to those who attend so many other uh, traditional chapels or groups, those affiliated with myself, with Bishop Sanborn, with other former Pius V priests, with um, the Mount St. Michael Fathers, and uh, so forth. And uh, in practical terms, uh, t- treats them as non-Catholics, for example, they wouldn't be eligible to stand as, as sponsors. So while it's a small group, and we want to emphasize that, nevertheless, it's a big problem when it hits you in your own backyard. Father, uh, I guess this being a 30-year-old controversy, we could almost say it's antique or historical <laughs> at this point. But, uh, Father, why, why do you think it's important to talk about this controversy? Well, first of all, for the, the different... Um, issues that Bishop uh, Dolan listed. And it, it is something that has caused a lot of um, 
personal pain for people, division in families, uh, broken up potential marriages, uh, and it just unnecessarily has caused uh, an awful lot of uh, of bitterness, I think. The uh, priest of the uh, Pius V Society uh, published uh, different rules and continue to publish them in their bulletins about uh, how uh, people who go at the prescri- go to the prescribed chapels cannot uh, receive Holy Communion, uh, will be refused the sacraments. They've, uh, for instance, refused um, uh, people from our chapel uh, to be sponsors for baptism for relatives in their chapel, and then uh, vice versa as well. So uh, there's this background. The uh, important issue, though, uh, I think, is to step back from it a little bit and try first to understand the uh, real origins of the controversy. You know, the, the, the common impression that people have is that the difficulties between uh, the Pius V Society, uh, Bishop Dolan and myself, and then uh, Bishop Sanborn, uh, and um, a whole load of former members of the the Fifth Society had to do something with Archbishop uh, Pierre Martin Noden Tuck, uh, from whom Bishop Dolan and Bishop Sanborn derived their orders. But this uh, was not the original reason for SSPV's policy of the refusal of uh, communion. Uh, rather, it was a, an issue that the, the group actually tacked uh, on a bit later. So what I think will be good and very healthy to do will be to uh, step back, put it in a historical perspective, and uh, try to look at the real origins of, um, of their policies, what they developed from. And Father, I think this is really important as someone that's attended uh, Society of Pius V Chapel quite regularly in the past, you know, that was the impression that the whole reason why these other clergy, you couldn't go to them was the tuck line. And then when I started actually looking into the issue of the consecrations of Archbishop Tuck and I brought all this evidence in opposition to what they were telling me, I couldn't understand why they weren't, in my opinion, being completely honest and open about it. And I'd never heard about any other controversy initiating this conflict. So this is this is new and relevant information for myself and many of my family members who are still in the society. But just for an example, I have a bulletin here from Father Skirky's church, uh, Immaculate Heart of Mary Catholic Church in Montana. And here, and you can find in the back, it says, anyone who hears the teachings of Leonard Feeney and the St. Benedict Center or who worships at religious services conducted by any of the Tuck bishops and clergy in concert with them must not receive Holy Communion at Immaculate Heart of Mary Church. And one interesting thing I noted from this is it says worships at religious services. It doesn't even give you guys credit of saying a valid mass. Yes. So, so uh, well, the, the, the notice that you've uh, read from is a uh, reflection of their general policy, and there are variants on that uh, notice in um, the bulletins of different Pius V Society chapels. Uh, 
the, the local chapel has uh, here in Cincinnati has one uh, one version of that, and I've I've heard of the same uh, announcements to the same effect in other chapels as well. So it's something that that's fairly universal within their organization. Well, Your Excellency, maybe let's go back. I thought a good place to start would be before the Society of Pius V was even formed. And I think especially for the younger generation of trads out there, we don't really understand the situation back in the middle to late 70s, early 80s, how the traditional movement was even structured in the United States. So I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of background on how were, how were the priests organized? How did the chapels function? Who even owned the chapels at the time? Uh, kind of how the whole uh, trad movement was organized, if you could. Well, uh, thank you, James. I'll probably leave the ownership questions to um, Father Chicada, since he's sort of our resident legal eagle. But um, having been almost from the very start, since I... Uh, went to the seminary with Archbishop Lefebvre in January of 1973, and a few months later, Father Kelly was ordained uh, to the priesthood by um, Archbishop Lefebvre. Um, I could speak about the, how things were at, at the very beginning. That is to say that um, for us, it was a, a very loosely knit organization of priests who were pursuing a different apostolates. Father Kelly was involved on Long Island with the school and with a, a parish that he had started himself and had developed. Bishop Sanborn ended up taking care of the seminary, which at that time was in Michigan. And I had developed, uh, uh, served some of the missions that the earlier fathers had developed, and then began a, a, a quite a bit of mission work throughout the United States. Maybe that would be said first, and then naturally the um, all the personalities of the different priests i suppose started to emerge and um things uh, were sort of stamped by that father kelly actually was very often absent nevertheless he had a um he had a great influence as to how things um were done uh at that time i, I think i would like to note too that while the saint pius v society uh, emphasizes today uh their opinionism uh, not opinionism about Archbishop Tuck, rest his soul, but opinionism about um, uh, this man Bergoglio as to whether or not he's a true vicar of Christ. Uh, back then, there was no question about that. We were all most firm. What united us all together was a firm adherence of the Catholic faith and a desire to spread that faith to as many souls as possible. We didn't start out by denying sacraments to people. Uh, we were all just busy doing a whole lot of things. Over time, I think you could probably say that the internal, um, there, was a, there were disagreements about internal authority questions because essentially everybody was highly independent, very American, and nobody really wanted to be told what to do. Um, I guess I will say something about the ownership of property. Since we were loosely affiliated with Archbishop Lefebvre, there, uh, there were different policies that the Archbishop had. And some, some years it was done one way, some years it was done another way. Father Chicana, what, what do you think about that? Uh, <clears throat> yes, that's a, a, a sort of a, a 
little bit of a tangent in, in the controversy, but to show you how uh, loosely things uh, really ran in the uh, Pius X Society, there uh, were no really firm rules as regards the ownership of property. And uh, at one point, the property was supposed to be held uh, by members of the laity. Uh, at another point, uh, the society was supposed to have control. At another point, we were supposed to go back to um, ownership by the lady. So there was this this um, uh, change of, of policy. Things were run in sort of a loose way in the Pius X society. Uh, the other thing that um, should be noted is, is uh, Bishop Dolan mentioned that um, the uh, idea of uh, organization and rules and everything, it, it was, in fact, very loose. Uh, in fact, it was so loose that uh, I did not see uh, the statutes of the Society of St. Pius X uh, as uh, a religious organization uh, until I moved to Oyster Bay in 1980, and that was um, uh, three years after my ordination to the priesthood, and I actually found a copy in the storage area in the basement. I thought, well, this is very interesting. I've never seen these things before. So it was uh, internal organization was kind of uh, casual at that level. It, of course, eventually tightened up in the Pius X Society, but uh, nevertheless, that's how it was at the beginning. Uh, this this idea that uh, things were sort of uh, loose and independent the way things operated. So if I'm understanding this right, the priests, which are essentially missionary priests, and the priests were saying mass is in hotel rooms, homes, old buildings somebody bought and refinished, and the priests were viewed as connected each with their own mission, so to speak, not the mission connected to that larger entity being the Society of Pius X. Yes, that's that's essentially correct. In fact, uh, when we had our... Uh, dispute with uh, Archbishop Lefebvre in 1983, and I came here to Cincinnati and had the somewhat uh, unpleasant task of uh, informing the people what had happened, uh, a number of people uh, came up to me afterwards and said, who's this Archbishop Lefebvre you're talking about? What's the Society <laughs> of St. Pius the Tenth? I mean, why do they want to uh, change our worship and, and foist these face, fake priests on us? So it was quite, it was that loose. Uh, it was actually that loose. After you separated from the Society of Pius X, or in essence were kicked out by Archbishop Lefebvre, initially there were nine priests and you were joined by three others, I believe? Yes. Um, it, the, there were nine priests. We were referred to as the nine. It was um, uh, the, uh, it was uh, Clarence Kelly and uh, Donald Sanborn, uh, Daniel Dolan, myself, Joseph Collins, uh, Gene Berry, uh, Thomas Zapp, and then later we were joined by Daniel O'Hearn and uh, Dennis McMahon and Thomas Rochka. So uh, it's, 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 um, uh, so it was nine that went to 12, the 12 who became, as it were, the Society of Pius, the, uh, Pius V. But the thing to be pointed out that um, uh, while we were at 12, uh, eventually uh, eight of those 12 priests left. So now they're 
the only uh, original members are um, Bishop Kelly, Father Jenkins, Father Mrochka, and Father Skierke, and that's it. And uh, it was, we, uh, basically, the uh, controversies were, um, and uh, the difficulties became apparent to those priests, and they, as it were, voted with their feet. And today, if I if, if I understand correctly, it's Bishop Bishop Kelly would still be a, a member of the Society of Pius V, but in actuality, he started a new society or new organization called the Congregation of Saint Pius V. Is that not correct? Uh, yes, that's right. And uh, this this actually is a completely separate organization that's under uh, under his control. And it's tightly controlled, and it is the organization to which the younger priests, whom he or Bishop Sante ordains, uh, belong. So it, perhaps it would be uh, good to backtrack a little bit uh, and talk about the uh, uh, about Father Kelly himself and how this how he sort of stamped. Uh, put his stamp on on uh, what we were doing, in effect, uh, both in the Pius X Society and eventually in the Pius V Society. Uh, Your Excellency, would you care to comment on that? Yeah, I I I, re- I remember an old saying uh, that uh, Father Kelly used to use, which gives a an insight into his personality. And remember, just to understand church history, our church history, personality is everything. He used to say, love many, trust few, paddle your own canoe. He pretty much did that. He was a a quiet man. He was often gone. Um, You didn't see him too much. But he had everything firmly under control. And uh, he, not only the control of money, but also the control of people. And almost in the very beginning began with... uh, with uh, with uh, with a way of controlling people and priests by using guilt and fear and division. These are things that we only realize much much later. Uh, he had a way of speaking with because uh, he was an older man. He had been in the Air Force and a kind of member of one of those secret offices in the Air Force, so secret that they didn't even acknowledge that it existed until not that many years ago. And uh, we always suspected he perhaps he had some training in in mind control. He certainly was an expert at it. You saw it later on in the way in which he conducted retreats for young ladies and convinced them all uh, that they had a uh, vocation to the religious state, and if they didn't join the convent, that they would lose lose their souls. Uh, you see it as well in the way in which, although he didn't really know any theology and he didn't know any Latin, nevertheless, he set himself up as a great expert on many theological and canonical points, and we sort of innocently believe that that he was telling us the truth. Um, it was only much, much later that we realized that he was, that he was just buffaloing us. And uh, the very best he could do, uh, in which you see in some of the controversial writings that he has uh, published over the years, is what we call um, theology or canon law by index. You would look up something in the index uh, of, an English, of an English language book and then interpret it and twist it his own way. Um, those are some of the ways in which he, he was able to begin to, to, to set us up for these bitter divisions. And I, I stress that if I mention these things today, 
manipulation of consciences, um, a mind control, that sort of thing. It's it's only it's only as a way to help everybody to understand how do we get into this terrible fix. Um, so, say we we were we were shocked when we discovered that what he told us about Archbishop Dock about some sacramental and canonical principles that that was entirely false. But he had a very convincing, authoritative way of um, speaking. Even amongst ourselves, as the priest, he had a way of putting one priest at enmity with another. There was, in other words, there's, there's a lot of playing of politics in this small group. We always disagreed. No one wanted to be told what to do in our little group. We always disagreed as to who was going to do what when. And um, uh, in theory, we agreed, however, that no major steps were to be undertaken without the consent of all priests, young and old. But actually, Father Kelly just went right ahead and started his own agenda. What sets us up for the division, why the priest started leaving the Pius, uh, the Fifth Society in 1989, is uh, the question of the founding of nuns, these daughters of Mary. Uh, the first thing that, uh, that that Father Kelly did was to take a huge amount of money on his own without consultation and to uh, purchase um, oh, sort of a run-down camp in the Catskills and set that up as the novitiate for these nuns to say buying the property, setting up the order without any real consultation of any of us, just when we needed every penny we could scrape up in order to continue our defense of the people and the properties throughout the country who are still being sued by Archbishop Lefebvre, um, who at that time was in very serious discussions with, of all people, Ratzinger, about coming back to the uh, conciliar church. But there was no discussion, there was no vote. He simply did it and then established uh, and established uh, these nuns, and as I say, used highly doubtful means to get so many young ladies into, into the... Um, to the novitia. Well, Father Chicot, how am I doing? Can you anything? <laughs> Pretty good. Um, no, it, 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 um, uh, saying this so many years later sounds a little like, well, oh, one is taking cheap shots, etc. But I mean, if we want to understand the, um, the, the real origins of the uh, uh, dispute that we see later and the divisions that we see later, this is what the sort of thing that we have to trace, that uh, it is it was very much affected by uh, his uh, personality, his way of running things, his way of controlling things. And uh, we uh, definitely did uh, look up to him and respect him because he was older, and he did have a convincing way of speaking. But eventually, we uh, found out that um, uh, it was a question of, I guess, the man behind the curtain of the Wizard of Oz. That uh, I mean, on so many of these things, when we did our own research, we ended up uh, being deceived. It was all a question of control, wasn't it, Father? It was all control. He wanted to, uh, as you wrote, he wanted to to create a little orderly little world in his corner of the Catskills with the nuns under him, and eventually young priests. He wanted control of the nuns, control of priests, and control of the people. That's pretty much the sad story of these divisions. It was Father Kelly and his desire for total control. So, Father, if we step back, and I really want to just clarify this point for listeners, and that would be before the split, during the split with the Society of Pius X, and even with the formation of the Society of Pius V, 
the priest, while they were still functioning as a loose organization, did not look to Father Kelly as the leader to make all their decisions. Uh, no, that, uh, that's true. In fact, we uh, talked about uh, the position that he had, which was uh, district superior, even in the Pius X Society, as someone who has a certain uh, moral authority, but not uh, really any sort of uh, authority to command. He certainly didn't have that under the rules of the Pius X Society, and he certainly uh, didn't have uh, that sort of authority. Um, we didn't recognize that in him. When we um, uh, were expelled from the uh, Pius the uh, Tenth Society and ended up as the Pius the Fifth Society, so it, it, it was a um, it, it was more or less an uh, honorary uh, type of position because he was the oldest, and we did look to him for for certain things, but it, it was not in the uh, his his function was not in the nature of a real superior. So his his beginning of the comment, the daughters of Mary, on his own, really was ignoring the rest of the, the rest of the priests that were associated at the time. It's supposed to be functioning in some way together with him. Yes, and and see that was a real problem, James, because uh, these were these were impressionable young ladies who would be entirely and unquestioningly obedient directly to him and only to him, when they were put out into parishes, there would be problems. Even Father, Father Jenkins here in Cincinnati, who is our bitter, bitter enemies, uh, can't get along with the nuns, and the nuns were all withdrawn because he would not submit to the nuns. Uh, so it was, it was, um, it was, a, it was uh, actually a terrible malformation of what could have been a good religious society of, of, of sisters. It could have done some good for the church. I think I can speak to this issue because at the beginning I was the, um, the, the confessor, and I would travel up on a regular basis to hear the nuns' confessions and to give the sisters spiritual classes and conferences. Almost from the start, I noticed this incredible and ridiculous, oh, sort of a contrast. On the one hand, a great pride. I would preach to them about humility, and we really were nothing at all, and, and we should just try to do a little bit of good for our Lord, and we're not there, a real religious order or anything like that. We don't have public vows. And he would then, and then he would come, and he would speak to the sisters after me to correct the conferences that I, would, I, had, I had given, to, uh, to say, no, that, that they were the best, these nuns were the best things since uh, sliced bread. There had never been an order like that in the whole, uh, before in the whole history of the Church, and they were just really great. But that was accompanied by, this was the contrast, uh, I saw some of the brutal destruction of the sisters' personalities, not a spiritual formation in, in the virtues, which you expect with sisters, but really a brutal destruction of them, so that, in a, as in a cult, their identity is only, and their self-worth is only as being a member of the group. So that's going on. And then there was a big kind of a scandalous controversy about one of the nuns that was kidnapped by her family and deprogrammed, and then Father Kelly decided to go on the Phil Donahue show. That's before your time, James. But it was a controversial one of those talk shows, a bit like Oprah, maybe something like that. And um, then there were, although we didn't want it, there were conferences given at all of our chapels throughout the country, and all the lay people had to get in on all of this controversy. But the, the purpose of the controversy was to mold the people, as well as the priests, into obedient subjects, just like the nuns, to, guess what, Father Kelly. 
um, and even the public meetings that were held, different crowd control techniques were put into effect. So you're talking about Father Kelly and uh, a real developing as a real cult leader, and uh, and then uh, a stumbling point is the nuns, who far from assisting us, then became um, a, a real cause of, of division for us. And that's what led to all of the problems in uh, 19... 89. Uh, there was a former Pius X sister, the brother of, excuse me, whose brother was one of our priests, Father Barry, and her name, her religious name is Sister Cabrini. And she was the one who helped Father Kelly to establish uh, his Daughters of Mary to start with. And then at some point, there, there, there were some real divisions, uh, disagreements, I should say, real disagreements, because Father Kelly was, we felt, inappropriately involved, even in the, the very uh, inner workings of the convent, such as a, a man shouldn't really have been involved with uh, those kinds of questions with, uh, with, with nuns. Traditionally, the nuns, even from the very start, would have their own government to take care of a lot of the internal matters, but he was a, a, part, of, uh, a part of every aspect of, of life. That and some other difficulties led to uh, old letters being written and uh, disagreements being aired. Uh, Father Kelly decided to expel uh, the, 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 the founding, founding mother superior, really, um, Sister Cabrini, and sent her to Cincinnati, and then actually wanted her put out on the street. He didn't want her even to be able to be a sister or, or live in a religious house or have any place to stay, I think. And, and at that point, I stepped forward and I, I welcomed her until she could certainly renew her vows, because all vows today are private vows, as anybody who knows anything about canon law understands. And, um, and then there was no reason why she shouldn't be able to continue her apostolate, because she had done a lot of good. So but what I want to really stress here is the division was not over Tuck. No one even had anything controversial to say about Archbishop Tuck. We were following Father Kelly's party line back then against him. It was all a question about one nun and this new group of nuns and what should, what, what should be done. So um, then there was an agreement that was made, Father Chicada. Do you recall the terms of that agreement that was in summer yeah, well, of 89? We had, we had a... Um, uh, the, uh, Bishop Dolan and I were uh, the first two, as it were, to go under the axe because of this. And, uh, however, uh, what Bishop Dolan has just pointed out about the difficulties with uh, the sisters at Round Top was uh, it was not peculiar just to Bishop Dolan and myself. Um, the uh, other some of the other priests who actually worked with the nuns noticed this as well. Uh, as well. And in fact, Father um, uh, Father Joseph Collins and Father Daniel Hearn also joined with me around this time, 1989, uh, in signing a letter pointing out just some of the things that we've pointed out tonight. So something. Uh, so we had something on the record that, uh, you know, we were stuck with this convent uh, of nuns. We had no say-so over it. Uh, the, uh, in effect, it was uh, something that uh, Father Kelly was running himself against the uh, rest of us. And that's how he set it up. And uh, also, I pointed out they worked for at least two years for me in the parish uh, on Long Island, and I thought that they were lazy. 
Uh, I, uh, you know, for all of this, this carrying on about the uh, religious life, it was uh, difficult to get them to do stuff. And uh, Father Kelly would back them up all the time. So uh, we, this, this, this was part of the factor. And then on top of it, uh, to have this uh, controversy over a uh, the expulsion of, of uh, the sister and to treat her uh, so cruelly, that was uh, that was the cherry on top, really, of uh, what went on. So uh, when this this came to a head in July of 1989, we had a priest meeting out here and uh, try out here in Cincinnati. And uh, Father Kelly made all sorts of charges about how uh, well by um, uh, you know receiving this this sister Cabrini receiving her vows it was sacrilegious because she had public vows and the daughters of Mary. All of that is canonical nonsense. It's all uh, made up. But, uh, you know, I suppose sound, sounds very convincing. In any event, there's no way to resolve this uh, situation because we were not going to, uh, we were not going to back down. Um, so we agreed to resign from the organization and uh, then resign from uh, the different corporations. Um, we had a signed agreement with the Pius V Society, and part of the deal also was that uh, they would... Uh, uh, not uh, found a rival mass center in Cincinnati. Uh, that since Father William Jenkins was here as principal of uh, St. Gertrude's School, we would continue to work with him at the school, you know, providing, I guess, confessors and the other stuff. The school would continue to work up at uh, the, uh, the church, uh, etc., and uh, that we basically would try to get along. Maybe before we, we get into the, the agreement in the mm-hmm. summer of 1988, I'd like to step back just and give a little more detail on the founding of the sisters and just clarify, when Father Kelly founded the sisters, he did it in conjunction with Sister Cabrini, then she would have been a co-foundress? Of she, the, yes, that, yes the she, she, was, okay. she was indeed the co-foundress, absolutely, because she, she was the one who had made an novitiate under the Pius X Society, and she was the one who trained the first novices for Father Kelly. And then when Father Kelly did this with Sister Cabrini, what input did the other priest have in uh, agreeing that this was a good idea, in putting the the uh, rules for the order together, how it was going to function, how much influence or uh, uh, how much did Father Kelly go to the other priest in order to get their opinion on that? Uh, he he, that he didn't. He did not. In fact. Uh, uh, very often in my in my experience over the years, and it's really a sad thing too if you think about it. But very often in the in the foundation of these of these so-called orders or congregations or groups of sisters, you have what what I think of as a kind of a bait and switch idea that it's promoted to the clergy as this would be just really great. These sisters are going to be so devoted and they're going to help you do this, that, and the other thing. But uh, then, but when it comes down to actually finishing uh, 
So the book of the rules, as were the constitutions, and actually determining the lifestyle of the sisters, it ends up being, instead of the sisters being the, the, the servants of all and, 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 and those who will assist the fathers, the priests are meant to, are meant to serve the sisters, provide them with money and with a location, and obey their orders because um, they're directly under, in this case, directly under Father Cali, and are not to be countermanded. So, so to answer your question, no, the priests did not have uh, any input at all. There was a, there was a little bit of carrying on, uh, as there always was with Father Kelly, to bluff people. But the reality of it was something quite different. Sadly, as I say, he was not the last one to do something like that. Um, but the uh, I think that I think that the burden of it was increasingly felt. Uh, felt by the fathers. But you see, what made it difficult, and, and to understand anything about these things, James, is you always have to understand, it's not a question so much of letters or dates or facts, or, but it's always a question of, these, of, of the personalities involved. So the fact that Sister Cabrini, whilst a very devoted woman, was at the same time somewhat on the intense side, and maybe a little bit controversial and stubborn in her own way, and then, then she got herself embittered, embittered against Father Kelly, and she, it was total warfare. She wanted the battle to the very death. We, after this split in division, were hopeful that things would just kind of quiet down, as Father Chikata just has explained, and that we could maybe even in some sense still work together, but she wasn't having any of it, and actually they weren't having any of it either. And it, what always happens, and that's the reason we've got all these uh, refugees trekking through Slovenia today, is that the innocent civilians get caught in the middle of, of of, of the battle lines. And that's what happened to the people back then. And they didn't understand. They just know which priest they liked or what priest they had a grudge against. And then they would make their decision as to who to follow or maybe what chapel was closer to their home, what mass. Um, that's the, Those are the, the sad things that, the, that always happen. Nobody really seems to consider the good of the faithful. And it's a tragedy because at this point, in this controversy, there weren't any questions of the faith. There weren't any questions of morals. It was just a way of, of, of dealing with the strong, strong personalities and, and some desires for control and the rest of it. And it, it could have been handled in a, in a peaceful way, but it was not. And so then that, this, this kind of a thing sets you up then, I think, for the next chapter, which would be the rival of the Tuck controversy. But what I want to stress, though, it was all about nuns. It was nothing about Archbishop Tuck at the start. Yes, I remember very clearly that um, uh, after I resigned from all the corporations and uh, 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 left Oyster Bay, uh, came out here virtually immediately, uh, Father Jenkins called a uh, big um, the parish meeting, and all all sorts of uh, uh, emotional speeches were made, and uh, uh, and so on, and uh, immediately announced the formation of a rival chapel. And the idea of what the people were told is that well. Uh, at St. Gertrude, uh, the, the B Bishop Dolan and I were guilty of sacrilege uh, because uh, we uh, were uh, we received this nun, and, uh, and uh, she already had vows in this wonderful organization, canonical organization, the Daughters of Mary. It was sacrilegious to receive her, and therefore people should not come to our masses, because in so doing, they would be cooperating in our sacrilege. 
which, of course, is anyone who knows anything about moral theology knows that's nonsense, that it's not um, uh, that uh, censures and all this other stuff uh, don't sort of jump down the communion rail. But uh, that, is the, that, that was the, the line that they were fed. Nothing to do with Tuck. Nothing to do with CMRI, zero. It was all the nuns. And people have to be uh, uh, clear on that. Before uh, analyzing, I do want to look at that agreement between you, uh, Your Excellency, and uh, the Society of Pies V. Before doing that, I'd like to remind the listeners that you are listening to Trad Controversies on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, James Schrempfer, and today I am joined by His Excellency Bishop Dolan and Father Chicada of St. Gertrude the Great Church in West Chester, Ohio. We've been discussing on this episode the beginnings of the Society of Pius V and leading up to the break a lot of the priests had with the society. We would like to remind you that Trad Controversies is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to mail at truerestoration.org. So your father and your excellency to go into the agreement, it very explicitly states that Father Jenkins and the Society agree not to found a mass center in the greater Cincinnati area. And right at the same bottom of the page, it is signed by Father Jenkins on July 8th, 1989. And so from what you're saying is Father Jenkins signed this agreement and essentially within a month set up a rival mass center? Yes, uh, by the uh, middle of August of the following month. Do, it, what, do you remember, Father, what's the deal with uh, the Donald Duck? No, no, that was, uh, that, was another, uh, that was another controversy. Oh, that was another controversy. Oh, okay, because at some point, Father Jenkins had signed a, a document that we were after him to sign. He finally signed a Donald Duck. Uh, but I guess that, that, that's another story. But... but but so yes, as, as one had actually, I had almost forgotten this because immediately he he broke the agreement and founded his own chapel because the idea was that I had to be crushed because I had opposed uh, Father Jenkins and Father Kelly and anything would do as to stick with which to beat me and they've used many many a stick over the years. I have to say, the funny thing is, and what I want people to try to remember, though, it was all about the nuns. And Father Jenkins got his just punishment because he was unable to get along with the nuns himself. And they were all suddenly withdrawn from the school, and he had to scramble one school year to come up with uh, lay teachers. And to this day, although they're united against us, uh, Bishop Sante will not confirm. Imagine holding back the sacrament of confirmation. He won't confirm. They'll, uh, they'll, Father Jenkins sends his uh, confirmation candidates over to St. Pius the, the X uh, to these sacrilegious antichrist uh, soldiers of Bergoglio, uh, but he, he won't have anything to do with us. And, and, but he's still under punishment because he dared to go against the nuns at some point. And isn't that sad that priests and faithful should be divided on such an essentially really secondary and, and, and silly point? But that sets the tone pretty much for this whole and particular traditional controversy. Well, it sounds like the sacraments are being used as leverage to coerce Absolutely. the Absolutely. laity. 
So Sister Cabrini came to you. She made her profession of vows. And in the agreement, it states that you would not, or Sister Cabrini would refrain from basically speaking against Round Top and recruiting from the Daughters of Mary. So was she, when she left, did she try and bring over some of the Daughters of Mary out of that organization? No, what, what, what she did was she aggressively went after anybody and everybody possible to draw them in without any sense of charity or discretion, to draw them into the, the nitty-gritty of this controversy. She would have copies of her letters to Father Cowley, and she I remember she just set them on the swings once in the, in the playground. Uh, it was just... It was just, it was, it was on both sides. I have to say, it was just, it was, it was a battle to the death. It was, it was without any prudence or any respect for the the faithful and for peace. And of course, the lady felt kind of crunched in the middle between all of this, and they didn't know who to believe or 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 who to follow. It was, um, it was a very, very sad incident. I'll tell you. But as, as far as the agreement, we lived up to our part of it. We forbade her to uh, uh, to conduct these campaigns, etc. But uh, there's, uh, you know, I, uh, Father Dolan, and I didn't have any more authority over her than um, uh, than uh, Father Kelly had over her. Because none of this comes from uh, the ultimately from the from the hierarchy of the church, and you forbid someone to do something, and you hope they see the light. But uh, you know, it's 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 just one of those things. We did our part. Mm-hmm. So, Father, you wrote a letter on October eighteenth, nineteen eighty nine. So this would have been a couple months after the agreement was signed. Uh, to it sounds like a former parishioner. And you detailed the problems you had with the sisters, but also how the priests were coerced, more or less, it sounds like, into starting the Sisters of Mary or funding the organization. And I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of details on that. Well, what happened is we didn't know anything about the finances because it was was all run secretly by Father Kelly. And uh, the uh, chapel building fund... um, uh, for the people of Long Island was uh, used to to, uh, to purchase this uh, uh, to purchase this property. Uh, Father Kelly did um, uh, try to do different things with with investments and penny stocks that uh, uh, that failed. So this was all done um, under the radar screen. The the uh, foundation of this um, uh, uh, convent in uh, in upstate New York, and the idea was that well somehow the chapel on Long Island was supposed to uh, was supposed to benefit from it, but it was a uh, the uh, again the letter uh, makes it very clear that uh, it was the sisters, uh, it was the foundation of the Daughters of Mary up in Round Top, New York, that was the heart of the dispute in, um, you know, even even in October. And I had a, I was pastor of St. Pius V Chapel on Long Island at that point, and eventually I found out about the, um, you know, how the uh, building fund disappeared, and uh was used to uh, run the convent, and I could not get straight answers. I couldn't get any documentation for it. And the uh, so I was, was faced with that, and then 
uh, as as pastor, and then also with the difficulties of trying to get these nuns uh, to uh, cooperate with the different programs at the, the, the chapel, and I had difficulties with that uh, as well. So it was the uh, it turned out to be. Uh, First of all, we we were opposed to the foundation of it in '84, and then uh, by '89, uh, everything absolutely had uh, gone south, and uh, I was uh, convinced that it it was in fact a total boondoggle, and it was something that we should not have got uh, gotten involved in, and it was this boondoggle then that was being used to hit Father Dolan and myself over the head. But obviously it wasn't just your yourself and your excellency because on that letter, that initial letter, June 29th, 1989, Father Collins and Father Hearn had also signed it. So uh, what was the treatment of these priests and, and the other priests of the society even after well, you and your excellency had left? Well, it, it's a, a divide and conquer. And so having gotten rid of Father Dolan and myself, then um, the uh, there was an uh, attempt to keep these other priests in the organization despite their uh, uh, hesitations, but uh, eventually one by one uh, they left because they uh, could not uh, really deal with sort of the, the, the secrecy and the deception and uh, the control that was being exercised. So it, and it was a, 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 over the period of a couple of years, uh, there were, as, as I pointed out, eight priests, eight out of 12 eventually left. So to lead into, because up to this point, up to 1989, we still don't have, or there's no mention in any of these letters of the tuck line being of any issue. And now it's my understanding at some point in the 80s, the Society of Pius V had looked at the Tuck line. Uh, I believe your article, Two Bishops in Every Garage, was written mm-hmm. in the early 80s. Sure. Um, but you had been doing subsequent research in the 80s about the, the Tuck line and the issue of the validity of the Tuck line. Uh, where were you in 1989 on that issue as a group, as a whole? Well, uh, to back up just a little bit, the Two Bishops article I wrote in 1980, 1980 or, uh, no, maybe a little bit later than that, maybe um, uh, maybe something like 82, something like that. In any event, um, I researched it, and when I got to the end of the article, uh, the question was, well, is it valid or not? And uh, I... Uh, could not arrive at actually at an answer to that question on the basis of my research, but I remember being in my office at Oyster Bay and Father Kelly pressing me to say, well, you have to say it's invalid, you know, after all of this. And uh, I said, no, the criteria for determining the validity of the fiscal consecration, um, uh, the, we still have to do research on that. I will not say that it's invalid. You, you can say that you don't want anything to do with them, maybe, but uh, as far as the validity, you can't. But you see, even at that point, he was um, uh, uh, pressing for something there. And, and what did he say, Father? What was the reason why you had to say it was invalid? Well, uh, Your, Your Excellency, that is actually a few years later, and that story is even better. <laughs> oh, 
we can't wait. Go ahead. Oh, we can't wait. Okay. <laughs> well, well, here's 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 basically what happened on the Tuck issue. I didn't really want to get involved, and, and it was Father Sanborn who wanted to get involved. And the way he kind of came about it is, we were searching around for a bishop so we could do the seminary. And uh, he went down with a translator to see Bishop Antonio de Castro Meyer in, um, uh, 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 down in uh, Brazil. And uh, Bishop Antonio de Castro Meyer said, well, you know, I don't uh, ordain any people outside, for, uh, outside of my own diocese here, outside the diocese of Campos. But why don't you go to Gerard de Laurier? Now, uh, uh, Bishop Gerard de Laurier had been one of our professors at Acone, and he had been consecrated by Archbishop Tuck. So uh, Bishop Sanborn found that very interesting and came back and, and he reported that. He started to research the issue, and we thought that, well, we, we better get around to it. And uh, the, uh, Bishop Sanborn, Father Sanborn at that point, was supposed to recite, um, research the pro side. I, since I had done the, the two bishops article and knew where all the bodies were buried, uh, decided to research the, the contrary side, the contra side against involvement with the Duck bishops. Well, what happened is we eventually presented our uh, papers at a uh, uh, meeting. Uh, and uh, went back and forth on it. And afterwards, as I was talking with Father Kelly, this must have been in uh, something like maybe 1988 or, or maybe even early 89, uh, I said that, well, what Father Sanborn has come up with is, is convinced me that, that uh, you know, the, I forget exactly what the document it was, Something about by Leo the Thirteenth on intention, I think. I said it's 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 clear from that that uh, no matter what you may think of them, uh, we have to consider their consecrations as valid. And he then said to me, and I remember very clearly the words that he said, we can't say that the Tuck consecrations are valid. Otherwise, our some of our priests will want to get involved with them. So. At, at, at that point, um, it was like the sky opening up, and uh, it allowed me to figure out what was going on, that I was really being manipulated on this one. Uh, you know, obviously, I didn't go along with it, and, and after I left the organization, I researched the issue uh, further and uh, did, uh, did a study on it. But and that was what I was... Uh, and then, in the meantime... On the practical or the pastoral level, okay. So we're we're out of out of the organization, and it's the fall, late fall of 1989, and we're under all this attack from these priests. But at the same time, I'm feeling pretty good about life because I'm thinking to myself, uh, what a feeling of relief! I'm not involved in Father Kelly's ministry of condemnation anymore. Everybody and everything's got to be condemned and denied and all the rest of it. And we're we're discovering these theological truths. Well, what happened next, James? is that some of the old Mount St. Michael people, I mean, faithful of theirs for many years, came down to Midnight Mass from Columbus. And 
I remember thinking to myself, I'm not going to deny them Holy Communion. I knew they were. I'm not going to deny them Holy Communion. They're, they're Catholics, too. I'm just not going to do it, because I'm not in this, this, this denial and condemnatory mode anymore. I'm free just to be a Catholic priest and just follow moral theology, canon law. That's enough for me. And um, they got a hold of that sooner or later, eventually. And that's what led to the controversy that perdures to this day, and which has buried the nun story in its wake, because it, because it ended up such a big one. But it was the idea of taking care of people who were just innocent traditional Catholics who happened to end up with a different group. Sure, I mean, a little controversy about the Mount. God knows they've had their past troubles. But they're good Catholic folk, and why should we have to deny them the sacraments? Well, Your Excellency, you're, it sounds like you, you had quite a feeling of freedom there. Maybe you dumped your canoe for a sailboat. And, and, and indeed I did. I was, <laughs> that's a good one, James. That's pretty good. And as a matter of fact, you know, this initial split up meeting that we had in July took place on the 4th of July. And it was in the best American spirit of independence. But it wasn't for a while till I kind of, like, until uh, I kind of was able to, you know, uh, hoist my sail, as it were, and <laughs> kind of catch the wind of the uh, of the Holy Ghost who breatheth where He will. And so, subsequently, because when we talk about a time frame, I mean, this exploded in 1989, and practically by 1993, I believe, is when. Bishop Sanborn left, or Father Sanborn at the time. So in the course of three and a half years, essentially the Society of Pius V practically dissolved. Yeah, yeah, yes, it did. And I, I remember Father Sanborn saying how more and more just dawned on him. He had to get out and feeling pressured to get out by Father Kelly because Father Sanborn was always a man of uh, very well-spoken and, and a very a very uh, great theological acumen. And he was an all, another natural authority figure. And uh, Father Kelly saw him as a potential foe and opposition. And he had to be gotten rid of, and he was. Well, Father, Your Excellency, uh, as we close out this show, we've covered kind of the beginning and leading up to 1989 with the Society of Pius V. And I want to thank both of you for coming on and spending time with us. Is there anything you'd like to add in summary of what we've covered up to this point? Well, I, I would like to only to say a word that um, the good of souls has to always be considered. And if we if we are talking about these things today, and even, you know, we're human beings with a certain amount of relish, uh, at times in a little warmth, it's, uh, as, as one remembers the past, it's only to allow a new generation of young Catholics such as yourself and others who, who scratch their heads and say, wait a minute, why is there still this controversy? Why can't I stand as a baptismal sponsor? Why am I going to be interrogated at the communion rail? Uh, the, if, if we understand our past, then we have some idea about understanding our present. And then you put that together with uh, Catholic principles, and you will not only understand your present, but you, should under you can understand what we should be doing which is not following strong personalities, not allowing ourselves to be manipulated anymore, uh, but simply being Catholics. If we all could agree on the theological principles, then 
we could, in this case, in this Pius V controversy, we, I believe sincerely that, that we could just all sort of forgive each other for the past, and we could be at peace, and there could be a, a tremendous a strength that would come as a result of that. And Your Excellency, uh, that's, to, to just continue that point a little bit, is there isn't peace yet. People might ask why we're bringing this up on the network. Um, I have relations that are still refused communion. I have a cousin that essentially was refused entrance into the seminary over this issue, a friend. Mm -hmm. Um, I know of multiple marriages that were stopped dead in the tracks Mm -hmm. or potential marriages because of this issue. So to me, there isn't peace, and my generation has no idea. Like I said at the beginning of the show, I thought, for basically up to talking to you and father here recently that it was all about the tuck issue and that was the I couldn't understand why the society just refuses to look at the tuck issue honestly but with this now uh, in conjunction with that you're you're seeing that there's more more at play here there's there's more background I hate to say it, James, but what really, what, what, the, the truth of the matter is not even the nun controversy. The truth of the matter is the desire of one priest or maybe one or two priests who, uh, who desire a, a, different, a different modality, a different way of conducting business to form traditional Catholics into members of a cult or a sect or something that's very, very close to that, unthinking obedience to to the leader, hatred of everybody else outside of the group, and a great enthusiasm for, for following. Uh, I think that's what we've seen over 30 years, and it's a very sad thing. They don't have to live that way. You know, they could be free, too, if they wanted to. But first of all, they have to sort of understand the history, understand the personalities, and understand Catholic doctrine and canon law. And those issues we, we will certainly look forward to discussing on future shows. Father, is there anything up to this point you would like to add or summarize? Well, it's hard to be more eloquent than an Irishman. <laughs> but Bishop Dolan has uh, uh, indeed summarized it very well, uh, and that uh, one uh, uh, should certainly look at the history of this in, in a realistic way. And then also step back and say that uh, the division uh, that has been uh, constructed as an artificial one uh, that uh, there was absolutely no need for in terms of uh, Catholic teaching, Catholic theology, Catholic moral principles, and to uh, decide to uh, put those uh, the, the the objections that are based on false principles to just uh, 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 put them aside, not take them seriously, and uh, start to treat the rest of the world uh, as the people who are victimized by these things as Catholics, and that is uh, and that is the point. Well, Father, uh, Your Excellency, I look forward to next time maybe continue on on a historical perspective from this. Uh, 1989, looking what's happened between now to date, and then perhaps in the the next show going into theological uh, arguments that are contested. If there's nothing else to add, I'd like to thank you once again for your time and joining us tonight, and I look forward to talking to you again as we continue this series next month. Well, you're very welcome. We look forward to that. Thank you. Thank you, and and God bless you all. Thank you, bye-bye. 
If you have any questions for our guest, uh, either His Excellency Bishop Dolan or Father Chicana, or feedback on this episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us at controversies at truerestoration.org, and we will pass along your questions or comments to His Excellency or Father. We would like to take this moment to remind you that all correspondence with us is strictly confidential. All of us here are at the Restoration Radio Network would ask if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and your faith, that you please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who helped make our network worthwhile. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even a simple ave for our work the next time you pray. For the Restoration, I am James Trupper. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.